Revelation, Revelation chapter 19. Uh, I'm going to read verses 11 to 16. That's on page 1040. Page 1040 in the Blue Church Bible. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. We're not going to expound them, simply read them, and then I'll be referring to them later on this evening. So let's hear the word of God. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings. Lord, let's pray together. Our God in heaven, as we focus this evening on the person of Jesus Christ, our King, we pray, Father, for your help. We pray, God, that for Jesus' sake, you would direct our thoughts to him, that you would capture our attention tonight and bring every thought to Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit will, will fill our hearts and minds with high thoughts of Jesus, that we might praise Him and worship Him and serve Him and love Him more. God of heaven, hear us, we pray, please, for we ask in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this evening we conclude our brief series with this will be our seventh look at the person of Jesus Christ. And we began by spending two weeks looking at his position within the Trinity. For example, how uh, Scripture reveals the Lord as being one God, but a number of persons. And we looked at where Scripture says it's actually three persons, not four or five, but three persons within the Trinity, three distinct persons of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We noted the nature of the Son's relationship with the Father. For example, in Matthew eleven twenty-seven, we read, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And from that statement alone, we, we thought about the depth of knowledge shared within the Godhead, the mutually complete and exhaustive knowledge one has of the other, and that we, you and I, we can only share something of, anything of, if we're allowed 
if God chooses to reveal it. And hence, since we've seen in our study of John's gospel that Jesus is the Word of God, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. No one has seen God, but He who is at His right-hand side, He has made God known. It's to Jesus we go if we want to know God. Jesus said, come to me, come to me, exclusively me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We looked at how since the Son has always, has eternally existed, then when the Apostle John writes that God is love, we know that's what God has spent eternity doing, loving one another. For example, John 17, verse 24, Father, Jesus prayed, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And I quoted from that book by Michael Reeves, The Good God, that before he ever created, before he ever ruled the world, before all things, before anything, but God was a father loving his son. We're very familiar, aren't we? Yes, that God so loved the world, He sent His Son. But actually, God so loved the Son that He made the world. We looked at that in Colossians 1.15. He, the Lord Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, for Jesus. It's because of the Father's overflowing love for the Son, the love felt and expressed throughout all of eternity. It's the Father's love that motivated Him to create and His creation is a gift to His Son, the eternally beloved Son, through whom and for whom God created the heavens and the earth. Why do you exist? For the pleasure of Jesus. That's why you exist. That's why you're here, for the pleasure, for the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're His inheritance. You're the theater in which He will reveal His glory. We then look specifically at the deity of the Lord Jesus. We look at how Scripture shows through what Jesus said and through what He did that this very ordinary-looking Jewish man from Nazareth was, in fact, very God. We then studied His humanity, His full humanity, His true humanity. We spent that night looking at various heresies and how people have tried to, to fathom this mystery of God's, of Christ's full deity and His full humanity. And we, we concluded by recognizing the importance of seeing Jesus as one person, but with two true and distinct natures. That's why we considered the matter of creeds and confessions and how helpful they can be in summarizing this doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ. But then we look at how, as the true God-man, 
Jesus is the best. He's the only mediator we have. The only true reconciler we have between God and us. And so we began to explore his role as mediator. We began to look at those three offices of the Lord Jesus. We, we studied him as our prophet. He is the ultimate revelation of God to us. We then looked at him as our priest. Jesus is the one who offers a sacrifice to God on our behalf. And indeed, he is himself that perfect and final sacrifice for our sin. And this evening, we conclude our series. We're looking at his office of king. Or to use the Latin phrase, always worth using a bit of Latin now and again, makes you sound important. Christus Rex. Christ is king. Christ is king. I suspect, I think, that the average modern Western person might struggle with that truth. Christ is king. Why do I say that? Well, I suspect it's because we're so used to living with what we call a democratically elected government, having an authority over us, governing us, that is dependent on us, on our will, someone we chose to govern us. Whereas whilst we are told in Scripture to submit to such earthly authorities, our ultimate authority is the unelected divinely appointed King Jesus, which, as I said, to the post-Christian mindset can be challenging. Challenging to the individual who now must bow their knee to Jesus, but also challenging in how they now work out that submission to Jesus when other authorities say one thing, but Jesus has said another. Remember, that's what the apostles struggled with, Peter and John. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, the council had told them not to speak to anyone about Jesus. That's what they said. But King Jesus, King Jesus said, go out into all the world and tell them about me. Tell them all about me and baptize them and teach them to, to obey me and so on and so forth. Jesus tells us to go into all the world. And regardless of whatever authority exists in that part of the world, but in that part of the world, tell them about King Jesus. That those people who live there, however they live under, whoever it is they live under, tell them to submit to King Jesus. That's quite, that's quite a strong thing to do, isn't it, when you think about it? It's a very strong thing to do. That's why Christians in China face such challenges where I read that for some of them, their sermons have to be vetted before they can be preached. They have to be vetted to, to make sure they are pro-communist party. Apparently, even the Chinese government are changing stories in the Bible to show Jesus as pro-communist. That's this challenge, you see, of living in this kind of age. But whatever the form of government each country chooses to follow, Every country is destined for a universal Christocracy. 
where Jesus Christ is king. And he will rule all nations with a rod of iron. Let's begin with the Old Testament. As you read through the Old Testament, you find the presumption that God is king, that, that he, the creator, is the king over all his creation. Psalm 10, verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. Think of what King Jehoshaphat said in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. One, one more king, King Hezekiah, said in Isaiah 37, 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. These verses and others like them, they, they cut smoothly through the pluralism of our day. It's like butter, you know. It just cuts right through it all. Unashamedly so too. Clearly telling us that the Lord our God is God, and He is the sovereign King of the whole earth and beyond. What was it, this, what, what was it that uh, Star Trek used to open with, to go into worlds yet unknown or something? Christ is King there. Christ is King there already. So, let's look at Christ as our King. This obviously began in the Garden of Eden. Everything begins there, doesn't it, really? We always begin at the beginning, where Adam and Eve lived gladly under the kingship of God. They gladly submitted themselves to their creator. God as their creator, their sustainer, their king. And this was a kingship that God shared with them. God gave them authority over creation. They were to have dominion over it. They were to care for it. They were to steward it. You see that in Genesis 1, verse 26 onwards. So when you have that scene of Adam, of God bringing the animals of the world to Adam for Adam to name them, that was Adam being King Adam. That was Adam expressing his dominion over the creation of God. But then, of course, we come to Genesis 3, when King Adam committed treason and sinned against God. And when that happened, his glory as a king, his, his, uh, his ability to rule his position over creation was ruined. And since then, it's been an awful mess. But God's plan hasn't changed. God's plan is still to rule over earth through a human king. And so we trace the story through as our study of Genesis, through Abraham and the patriarchs, uh, through Israel. We, we see the, the truth of God's kingship is represented. When Samuel, you read in 1 Samuel 12, Samuel rebukes Israel for wanting a king. We have to be clear there, he's not rebuking them for asking for a king, but he's rebuking them for the reasons they had for wanting a king. 
they, they wanted a king because they had seen what Nahash of the Ammonites had done. And so, without a king, they felt exposed. They felt alone. Basically, they had forgotten that the Lord was their king. This was the one who, prior to this, had sent the judges, who had raised up someone to lead them and rule them under God, but to, to act on behalf of God against all their enemies. Which then, when we look at how the book of Judges ends, sounds so interesting. Judges 17 verse 6 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. For all the right reasons, Israel needed a king. A king under God, the king. A king to lead them in righteousness and preserve them as God's own people until the king came, King Jesus. And of course, the first king to come was Saul, the kind of king that we would have naturally wanted when we looked at him externally. Uh, the writer, Samuel, presumably, is the one who clearly tells us that, Sam, that Saul stood tallest throughout all of Israel. He was clearly a big man, and so they thought, hey, this will be a great king. What a great king, clearly a great king. Someone who could protect them, someone who could lead them. But on the inside, Saul was not right. Rather, on the inside, it's David, the little ruddy-faced boy, the shepherd boy, who God chooses to, to uh, be a king over Israel. So Saul is removed. David becomes king. And David becomes then the paradigm, the, the type of the ultimate human king who would come one day, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, as we pick up that theme of David as king, as we trace him through the Old Testament, we, we, we pick up descriptions and pictures of that greater coming king, uh, how he will operate. For example, in 2 Samuel 7, David is told that one of his descendants who shall come from his body, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And we know, don't we, how kingdoms come and go, but this kingdom would last forever and ever. And that quality of kingship you read of again in other places. For example, Isaiah chapter 9, we have that famous nativity passage. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And what kind of kingship shall he have? Well, Isaiah tells us of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And should we doubt such a promise? No, because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You pick it up again in Isaiah 11, when David's family seems to, uh, to wither, to contract, 
And we read there how the shoot from the stump of Jesse, that will be the one appointed by the Holy Spirit to reign in righteousness. And then coming forward a bit more, we think of that vision Daniel saw in Daniel 7, where he sees someone like a son of man approaching the throne of God. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. These are like pieces of cloth which when you bring together and you sew together comes up with a, a quilt that points to someone coming. They combine together to point to someone uniquely significant, highly significant, who would come from the line of David. Someone who was anointed to lead not only God's people of Israel, but certainly his kingship would begin there. And then as Nebuchadnezzar dreamt in Daniel chapter 2, do you remember he had that dream of a statue and each part of the statue had a different material behind it and at the very bottom his feet and toes this great boulder cut not by the hands of man came and crashed into the bottom of it and every kingdom fell but that kingdom grew and grew and grew until it filled the whole world. That's this kingdom. That's the kingdom you belong to if, you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. A kingdom that will never, never fade away. So when we come into the New Testament, it's not surprising then with the coming of Christ to read of a king. That's what the Magi were looking for. You remember, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And then when they find the newborn king, what do they give him? They, they give him gold, gifts of gold and so on and so forth. But Jesus Christ is king. From conception to con consummation, Christ is king. From his birth throughout his life, like when he arrived at Jerusalem on a donkey, on the colt of a donkey, and the Pharisees don't like what the people are saying about Jesus. They demand that Jesus stop them, but Jesus refuses to stop the crowd singing their hallelujahs. Luke 19, verse 38, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. From his birth, through his life, to his death, when Pilate, wanting to provoke the Pharisees has that inscription nailed above the head of Jesus on his cross, King of the Jews. Even there, we're told, he's a king. From his birth to his life, through his life to his death, through to his resurrection from the dead, where Jesus, as king, demonstrates the authority he said he had to lay down his life and to take it up again. Is that the end of the story? No, because we have an ascension. We have a glorification in heaven. And we have a coming again in the glory of God. We think of that scene in Revelation 19 we read just a few moments ago of a coming, conquering King Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. 
Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's Jesus. That's the one the world mocks today. That's the one the world belittles today. They use his name in vain, just like it's another, any other name they might use. It's quite shocking, I find, when I'm watching programs on TV and they, they mention the name of Jesus, and just out of exasperation they say it. But that's him, you see. That's him, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the promised, the prophesied High King of heaven before every knee must bow. And actually, one day, every knee will bow before that king. But so what? So what? What does it mean for us that Jesus Christ is king? Let me finish with five implications. First of all, it means that he is sovereign over our lives. If Christ is king, he is sovereign over our lives. There's clearly this link, isn't there, a correlation between God's sovereignty and His kingship. You cannot have one without having the other. So, when we think of Christ our King, we're thinking of the one who as King, He loved us and He gave His life for us. We are His subjects, and the King so loved His subjects, He gave His life for them. And therefore, if we trust Him for our salvation, we ought then to trust Him in His rule and reign over our lives. And to be sure, there'll be times when, like Job, we, we don't understand the experiences He takes us through. There'll be difficult days, days where heaven seems like brass. We, we, we just can't get through, yet He's still there as King. He's still reigning as king. Nothing has changed up there. It's just our experience of it down here which may cause us to doubt his kingship in our lives. But he is still king. And we must still learn to trust him. If we trust in his wisdom for our salvation, if we trust in the plan of God for our eternal good through what he did on the cross, then by that same grace that first taught our heart to fear as we sing, we can trust Him. Rather, we can learn to trust Him when He takes us through the valley of the shadow of death. Christ is King over us and for us. Secondly, if Jesus Christ is our King, then we are His servants. And that might seem too obvious to bother mentioning, until you remember what Jesus described of people who call Him Lord, Lord, but who then don't convey His lordship, His kingship in their life by doing what He says. Friends, when we accept Christ as our Savior, not only are we receiving Him as the Lamb of God given for our salvation, but we're also receiving Him as our sovereign head as our high King of heaven, whom we are to serve. We cannot have, you see, one aspect of who Jesus is without the other. He is everything He is. As we heard this morning, He is the I Am. 
He is everything, all at the same time. He is our shepherd. He is our savior. He is our prophet. He is our priest. And he is our king. Not on other, every other day of the week, but always and at the same time. You want him as your savior. You must also take him as your king. And bow the knee to him. And say, Lord, not what I want, but what you have said. So when we put ourselves under his care of our soul, the New Testament teaching is that we're also putting ourselves under his rule of our lives. We're submitting to him as Lord and now living as his subjects in obedience to him. That's one aspect of why we take communion. We're saying, Lord, you're my Lord. Again, I renew my submission to you at this table. You redeemed me with your blood. I am not my own, but you have bought me at, at a great price. I now belong to you. And as I take this bread, as I drink this cup, I again submit to you as my king. That's why he told his disciples to do, to go out in the great commission, to go and make disciples, teaching them to do as they please, now that they've come to faith in Jesus. No, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Which brings us to the third implication of Jesus Christ being king. And that is, we have a great incentive to evangelize. The springboard of the Great Commission is the fact that Christ is king. You read in Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Go, therefore. That's that word, therefore, is important. Because of what I've just said, because I am king, you go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How is the king building his kingdom? by you and I going out, going forth, and telling people, sharing with them, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as more and more sinners hear the truth, as more and more repent and return to their creator, Christ becomes their king. But Christ the king does to others what he did in us, for us. He subdues them to himself. It's a strange word, that, but it's actually the language of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question 26, what does, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. How did you come to faith? Christ subdued you. Christ the King conquered your heart, your soul, your mind, so that you bowed the knee to Jesus and said, Lord, save me. What he did for you, he can do for others. In fact, he will do for others. That is his intention. God the King, Christ the King, will subdue all 
all the hearts of all his elect. And he chooses to do so through us. Go, therefore. Because Christ is King, go, therefore, and tell people the good news. Then, fourthly, knowing Christ is King means knowing him who reigns over our greatest enemies, our greatest foes, the devil and death. King Jesus defeated the devil through the death, his death on the cross. Remember how when Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted of the devil, Satan came and offered him all the glory of the world. I will, as it were, make you a king of all of this, if only you bow down before me. And Jesus told him no. Christ chose the hard, the difficult way of the cross. That was his path to glory. And in doing so, in choosing that path, in going all the way to the cross, as Paul writes in Colossians 2, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. At the very beginning, when Adam and Eve had sinned against God and God comes to them and tells Eve, then Adam, what the implications of the rebellion will mean for them. He turns to the serpent, he turns to the devil and tells him that the seed of the woman will crush his head. And that's what happened there on that cross. The Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate human king that God intended, would rule over this all of creation. He went to the cross, and there on the cross, he crushed the devil's head. And so our enemy, our great accuser, Satan, has been rendered powerless. Yes, he still threatens us. Yes, he still accuses us. But as we sometimes sing, when, when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, what do we do? Upward, I look and see him there, King Jesus, who made an end of all my sin. It's because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him, the one sat beside him, King Jesus, and pardon me. Yes, Satan will still buffet you. Death can still threaten us for sure. But because of Jesus Christ, we need not be afraid of them if we know him as our king. For King Jesus died and rose again from the grave to do as Hebrews 2 verse 15 tells us, to break the power of the devil who had the power of death so that we could be freed from living lives in slavery to the fear of dying. And then fifthly and finally, knowing Christ as King means that we also, listen to this, we also in submission to God will share in ruling over creation someday. We see those scenes, don't we, of that shared reign in John's vision of Revelation. What it will mean, I don't know, but it sounds good. 
Revelation 22, verse 5, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's the saints, the saints of God, those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. This is what the Lord Jesus came to do, to raise our humanity up again. We fell in Adam. What God intended for us in Adam was ruined when they, our first parents turned against God. But in Christ, He has changed that. He has fixed that. When God fulfills what He intended for us from the beginning, that we for all eternity would forever function as subordinate prophets and priests and kings, subject to our Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate, the supreme prophet, priest, and king. Let's pray together. God of heaven, thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done in him and through him for us. Lord, as we sit in this hall tonight, as we think of what's going on in the rest of the city tonight, Lord, truly we need your grace to believe this message, to believe that what you have intended for us through Jesus Christ is real, and we are truly more blessed than we could ever imagine. Lord, help us to take this in, please. Help us to see and to understand and to believe and to thank our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask for help in this, Lord, for without your Spirit, without your work in us, we just cannot get it. So help us in our weakness and bring us to praise you and to thank you more and more for all eternity. We ask in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.